I've been uh, thinking a lot about exile as we've been walking through First Peter and the sense they have as new Christians here in Turkey. Uh, they're receiving this letter, and he calls them exiles. They're kind of scattered throughout the region, recognizing that they're not at home, and they're actually in a place that kind of looks at them with suspicion, if not outright hostility. And I think about my own culture, and sometimes I think we feel like this as well. I came across a headline actually this week when I was going through the news, and it says, liberals waste no time playing the anti-Christian card. I don't want to get into politics. I'm not here to take sides left and right and all these things. But I just thought it really interesting just that even a, a national newspaper would mention this idea of anti-Christian sentiment. And when I dug a little deeper, when I read into it, um, near the end of it, he kind of summarized things this way. For in today's Canada, and in most Western democracies for that matter, you can get away with criticizing a Christian far more readily than you can for criticizing a Muslim, even if you're talking about the exact same social beliefs. I found it very interesting that we have here in a national newspaper this sense that the Christian community is, in some sense, in exile. Or, or they're not being well received by the community around them. And I don't, again, want to get into the, the social beliefs that he's talking about here, but it's just the sense, that, and, I, and I do, when I talk to Christians, is, is our culture out to get us? Is there a sense in which we are being ill done by? And whether or not that's true, I think it's very interesting because I do believe that if it is true, then as a Christian, we got to think about, well, okay, if, if I do believe this, and how, how would I react to this? And instantly, your reaction might be like, well, let's get them back. Let's fire back, and we can push back, and we're going to fight fire with fire. But when you start to delve into the scriptures, you start to recognize that the exile who's a Christian is actually called to respond in a different manner, a more Christ-like manner. Speaking of which, my response to last week's uh, sermon, which was quite excellent by Matthew. I, I, I don't know if you guys are here, but it was, it was excellent. And he mentioned how I didn't uh, uh, preach the, the beginning part of his sermon. That was more for me. And, then, and I, what I'd say is he also kind of gave me the end of his sermon, because the beginning passage I'm going to read today is actually something that should probably go with the, the passages before, because it's about submission. And I think he left it for me on purpose, because they're really one of the least popular passages, maybe in the, in the modern context, which is 1 Peter chapter 3, starting verse 1. And we're going to read this together. Just going to throw out a warning there, especially for our women here. This is not the easiest thing to hear in the modern context. Wives. In the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be the that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her dear daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear." 
Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with the respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So I got the easy passage. And I know it's really heavy. And when we hear it in our own context, it kind of sits with us, right? Like, wives, submit to your husbands. When we hear it, we immediately think of thousands of years of oppression of women. And we can say, well, this Bible verse is being used to oppress women. Just like when we heard last week, slaves, obey your masters. Think, is Christianity part of a system that is meant to oppress the weaker? Now, I want to begin by pointing I do not think that Peter is saying, hey, it's good to oppress women. It is good to oppress slaves. That's not, that's not where his heart is coming from. And you have to remember what he's dealing with and where he's coming from. First of all, when he's speaking culturally, he's talking about a culture where women were not very educated. There was not actually much that women had to, any kind of recompense or resource they could go to in terms of the, the systems that were in place. They depended upon being married. And what he's trying to teach here, if we're ultimately going to look at the whole theme and we're going to get to it, is that he's actually, I believe he's teaching wives suffer for doing good. If you listen to the entire passage in it uh, from Second, uh, 1 Peter 2, 13, it, the context starts to open up. You start to understand, why is he saying women like obey husbands? Well, it begins with 1 Peter 2, 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. To every human authority. I believe what he's saying is, if you're in a, in a situation in, in your culture, women of Turkey, you must submit yourself to the culture around you and the, and the authorities in order to be able to shine for Jesus. So, if you're a citizen of Rome, even though you hate the Roman Empire, pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's. If you're a slave, he even says, if you're a mistreated slave, if your slave master is abusing you, submit even still. Now, who is he talking to? He is talking to a ragtag group, not a big one, a very small group of Christians that are scattered throughout this region we would call Turkey today. And they are not big in numbers, and they are not influential in culture. In fact, they're often looked with the least suspicion, often fear and even condemnation. And most of them are women at this period of time. And so he's writing to, to these women. He's, he's writing to them for a purpose. He wants them to do this for a very good reason. It's, what I would say, it's, it's, a, it's motivated by the mission that he asked them to do this. Why? Well, he gives us the why. So that. Wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. This is a missiological statement. What he's trying to say is, listen, you need to be able to shine Jesus even despite however your, whatever your situation is. If you have a bad slave owner who's beating you, hopefully people will notice and say, you know what, like that guy, that, that owner, a horrible person, but that Onesimus there, that is a different type of person. 
He shines in the midst of even being abusive. There's something special about him, and it's Jesus. That woman, do you know her husband? He is a bore who's way too arrogant and proud. And not, but his wife, for some reason, she puts up with all that. There's something special about her, and it's Jesus. Do you see what he's calling these women to? Make sure you put Jesus ahead of all things. Suffer for doing good. And he knows he's asking something difficult of them. It wasn't like an easy thing. He's, he's asking them as Christians not to just be oppressed. What he's actually saying is be impressive. Show Jesus in the midst of your dark situation so that the culture will come to see the light of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. I, I believe if, if those women in Turkey did not hear this and take it into their heart and want to show Jesus' way, we probably might not even be here today, standing as Christians. They were asked to suffer in order to do good. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to the prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who are evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. You can tell there's something in the background there. Do not, do not fear their threats. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay insult for insult. I don't know about you. I'm going to stand here and say that is counterintuitive for me. If someone's going to say something to me and like, oh, you're like this, isn't it? Isn't it kind of like you're, ah. Well, you're like this, isn't it? Here's all things about you because we're all broken, flawed people, right? You ever had that? Maybe with your, maybe it's with the people you love most, your, your spouse, and someone says something, and then you check back, and then all of a sudden you're at this escalated level. Why? Insult for insult, insult for insult. Do not repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. And you know what? Doesn't it sound beautiful? Like, ideally you're like, yes. But when you start to really think about what Peter's saying here, it gets tough. Repay evil with blessing. Really? Like, what does that look like? How do I repay ISIS with blessing? At first you hear, like, oh, repay evil with good. You're like, I agree. Like, I try, yes. But what when you, you watch videos of, of a, a woman being beaten for becoming a Christian? Or the innocent slaughter in England? Should we bless them? And we're all going to go, yes. But I'm just thinking deep down inside, is that, is that not a difficult thing to do? 
Let's take a moment. Just to, let's let this sink in. When we're saying we do not return evil for evil, we're talking about ISIS as well. Just recently in a magazine, which is like the ISIS magazine, it's called uh, Rumiya, they've given new tactics out to their legions. Two tactics. One is to uh, fake job hires. So people show up to job interviews and then you kill them. The other one is that you rent out a house or a room and they show up to rent the place, there, get comfortable, and then you kill them. And they actually give instructions. I have some up here. Have a room specifically reserved for the disposal of the bodies of the targets. It's also important for the obvious reason of not alerting those intended victims entering the property after them. So you've got to make sure that you, you kill these and then you put them in a special room that no one can tell. So when the new people come in that you want to kill, they don't, they don't get tipped off by the dead bodies. This is actual instruction manual. Continues on, talks about... Uh, it's essential to have suitable weapons ready. Uh, you should have present with you a location of restraining, so just have something to figure out how to restrain them. Um, it continues on at the end, I think. Uh, ensure that there are no screams coming from the victim, so make sure you have loud music come play in the background. This is like a, a, a roadmap to murder, and guess what? This is going to often target Christians. Bless them. Oh, but you, this is okay, a little more real. Bless those who wrote that. Well, this is the heart of the Christian ethic. Not returning evil for evil. It's really easy to say, how hard is that to live out? And yet we have the examples of an uh, underreported story this week. 48 people killed in Egypt, gathering for church. And then the unthinkable happened on, on national television. There's a, there's a forgiveness. Muslims moved as Coptic Christians do the unimaginable. And in this story, it talks about probably the most famous um, kind of broadcaster journalist in Egypt. And he's just heard a report come back from a woman who's, I think it was her father or her husband, was um, basically responsible for help saving a lot of lives. He actually made the suicide bomber go through a security checkpoint and ended up taking, taking up, blowing himself up and killing that, that guy himself. Probably would have hundreds more people dead if he got, had gotten inside. And when uh, they were interviewing her, this is what she said. I'm not angry at the one who did this said his wife. I'm telling him, may God forgive you. And we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I could not have dreamed of. And this host in Egypt just sits there and just silence for 12 seconds as he's trying to absorb it in. And this is what he says. The cops of Egypt are made of Deal. He thought about it a little bit longer and he said, how great is this forgiveness you have? If it were my father, I could never say that. But this is their faith and religious conviction. Millions marveled with him across the airwaves of Egypt. This is their faith 
this is our faith. This is our Lord in action. But in your hearts receive Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is in God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And here we have it kind of playing out. Maybe it's a little bit more practical here. Be ready to give an answer, but do it in gentleness and respect. And I like how Peter's going here. He's telling you that we need to suffer for doing good, but he's not telling us to, you know, go quietly and just shut up about everything. So if someone's there and is like, oh, you're a stupid Christian, you might be like, your responsibility, well, you're a stupid atheist, right? That could be any kind of return. Instead, it's like, well, actually, Christians aren't stupid. Let me talk to you about why I believe. You don't, you don't not answer. You answer with gentleness and respect. And that takes a certain amount of strength to be able to respond to these insults and attacks in this way. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have, but make sure your conscience is clear. And that's a really difficult thing too, isn't it? To have a clear conscience. I, I think this is one of the most important things that Christians don't talk about much. Where's your conscience at? We see all throughout Pauline literature, all throughout Peter's literature. What, how's my conscience sitting? Make sure you keep a clean conscience when you do this. So what does that look like when you're talking about a suicide bombing with 48 people dead? How do you do this? Well, we've seen it through Father Bulish George of St. Mark's Church in Cairo this week. And he wrote this. A message to those who kill us. What will we say to them? Thank you. You know why we thank you? I'll tell you. You won't get it, but please believe us. You gave us to die the same death as Christ. And this is the biggest honor that we could have. We thank you because you shortened for us the journey. We thank you because you gave to us to fulfill what Christ said to us. Behold, I send you out as lambs amongst wolves. We were lambs. Our only weapons, our faith, and the church that we pray in. The second part of the message we want to send to you is that we love you. And this, unfortunately, you won't understand at all. Maybe you won't believe us when we say that we're grateful. See what Christ said. If you love those who love you, you have no profit or reward from me. Even thugs and thieves love those who love them. Any gang loves its members. Even the drug dealers all like each other and take care of each other, right? But I want to tell you that if you love those who love you, what reward have you? But I say to you, love your enemies. He said, thank you. And what's been interesting, what's happening in Cairo and across Egypt right now, is there's actually been a resurgence of the Christian faith. Those who maybe had like a Coptic cultural identity are starting to return to church and actually pray and, and, and speak up and start to live a life that Christ calling them to. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, the spirits in Tartarus. To those who were made disobedient long ago, when God waited presently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. That's weird. I have to take a moment to kind of explain that. Now, I don't have, a, a, I don't have time to get into it too much because I want to stick to the main theme of this chapter. But this is actually another one of those hard-to-interpret passages. Who are the spirits that are in prison? Some people say they're human spirits, the human dead that are kind of waiting. They died at the flood. And uh, someone like Rob Bell would say, well, Jesus went and preached to them. And kind of like, hey, here's your, you got to believe in. Others say, well, actually, the spirits in prison are more likely angels who disobeyed God in chapter 6 of uh, Genesis. And there's this whole thing about Nephilim and giants, and I don't want to get into it too much. But it's going to come up again, because it's going to come up again when we talk about violence in Scripture. And it's going to come up again when we read the book of Jude, because it's also there as well. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there. When we're doing a series and we're trying to go through the entire book, we don't have a long time to stop on little theological, beautiful, academic pieces like this, but they're, they're there. So if you have any questions, you can bring it up in your small groups, and hopefully you can have fun with that. I'd love to check chat about later, but I want to focus on the main point. Jesus suffered. He didn't just suffer. He suffered for doing good. He suffered for you. He suffered so that you could be forgiven for all that you did that was not good. In it, he's talking about Noah. Only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. You have a pledge of a clear conscience. Washed clean through Christ. I hope you can leave church today with a clear conscience. Wiped clean from the work that Christ did in forgiving you. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the, the idea of suffering again for doing good. It's not an easy one. I know it's not a happy sermon today. The text doesn't take us there. This is the way of Jesus to walk through life and when we suffer for doing good, understand that God can use that that people are watching, that the light of Christ might actually shine into people's life. Now, this isn't masochistic. It's not like you're, you're purposely trying to be suffering and hurt. This is about when it's God's will, it says. There's some times when things come our way. Now, what does that look like for us today? For most of us, it's probably not martyrdom in that same way. I pray that we'll never have to worry about bombings in churches here but since that's not our position, since we're not facing ISIS in that same way as our Christian brothers and sisters across the sea, what does it look like for us to be suffering for doing good? I was thinking about it. Maybe it might be for some of us. Maybe it's in marriage. Maybe you're suffering in silence. I know I, when I talk to people, I know there's a lot of hurt that can be these scenes. Maybe you're not being treated properly. Maybe you're hurting and there's lots of things going on behind you. You don't know what's happening and you're, and you're suffering. 
Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe you're not able to use the same tactics as those around you. And so you might have higher skills. You might be in a place where you are, um, deserve promotions. But because you won't backstab, you won't try to undermine other people, throw them under the bus, you're not rising at the same rate. You're thinking, like, I'm suffering here. Why is this happening to me? You're suffering for doing good. Perhaps it's serving in church. Maybe you're serving in some ways and your, your service in church, people can get hurt, right? From, from those who are on staff to leadership team to volunteering, like uh, being in small groups together, like you might have got hurt. Suffering for doing good. Maybe it's quite literally with your neighbors. I have a friend of mine who's a musician in, in America and he posted this the other day on his Facebook. I'm writing a song about loving my neighbor. Then my neighbor lets his dog roam free and it bites my seven-year-old and now the owner's hiding from me. Ironic, I still have to love them or scrap this song. <laughs> Sometimes, and people are like, well, you should sue them and do that. And he's like, no, I want to keep a, a relationship. I want to figure out how to do this right. Sometimes, I, I don't know about you, have you ever had a neighbor who it was, wasn't a good thing? Where they're just kind of angry and on you and all the times and you're trying to live this Christ-like attitude and inside you just want to tell them, like, you're a jerk. Suffering for doing good is this call as Christians to be able to endure. So today we heard Peter, he's calling us to expect suffering. Some day in your life, as you follow Christ, there's going to be some places where you're going to suffer for that. Someone's wronged you. You're not to hurt them back. This goes against common sense. This goes against your common impulses. This is the way of Jesus. And so I just want to make clear that you, too, must suffer for doing good. So come to the table today. We are participating in an ancient, ancient practice where we relive the most beautiful act of suffering for doing good. Where our Jesus was put on a tree and killed for teaching the way of peace, the way of love. And so today as we gather, I, I pray we gather under that, uh, that example, recognizing that we too are called to this, but I also pray that you would also receive the grace that comes from this. And many of us today, we could probably think of like, oh man, even this morning on the way to church, we started calling each other names and or there's that person that got, like, that you would allow his act, his great suffering for doing good, to clear that from your conscience that you would receive that, that grace, that forgiveness for not maybe living up to that, but also that power to help you through those moments that come this week where you must suffer for doing good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it's difficult. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the fact that he would 
allow himself to suffer so that he could bless us. We pray for those who are suffering right now for their faith, who are facing even death, those who are in difficult situations with families, with work, with neighbors, with school. Would you give us the strength, Lord God, as we receive the bread and we receive the juice to remember that we follow you, the great suffering Messiah, and that you will give us the power and the strength to follow you in that path. And may you, Lord God, be given glory through all of it. May you shine out of us as we learn to walk in your way. Amen.